I'm Damian Bulwa, Managing Editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. Today on Fifth and Mission, I have three guests, and they're going to talk about an investigative story that's called Far From Home, Far From Safe. It's about how California has treated thousands of its most vulnerable children. The story involves teenagers who've gotten into trouble and need intensive oversight and treatment. We found that California has been sending them to treatment programs in other states that are run by a for-profit company. That's despite laws designed to stop that practice. Rampant allegations of abuse then followed. This story is a collaboration between The Chronicle and The Imprint, which covers child welfare issues. Even before it was published, it prompted a massive change by California officials. The story can be found at sfchronicle.com slash farfromhome. Okay, let's get to it. My guests are Joaquin Palomino and Cynthia DeZickes from The Chronicle and Sarah Tiano from The Imprint. Guys, a remarkable and important story. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Damien. Thank you. All right. So the story begins with a plane touching down at an airport in California's Central Valley. What prompted this flight? So our story begins actually back in May at a facility in Kalamazoo, Michigan called Lakeside Academy. It's a residential treatment program for foster youth and also youth who have gotten into trouble with the law. And back in May, uh, 16-year-old boy at the facility named Cornelius Fredericks was killed by staff members. He was restrained after throwing bread in the cafeteria and uh, suffocated to death. And after that sort of tragic incident occurred, uh, there was chaos at this at this program. The kids started running away, getting in fights, uh, breaking things. All of the states who had sent the youth to the facility realized they had to bring their kids home. And so it, it turns out that about a third of the kids at that program were from California. And so the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services started trying to, to get these kids back, back to California. And in the process, found out that many of them had actually been exposed to uh, or contracted the coronavirus. There was a major outbreak at that at the program. And so in this really sort of dramatic uh, escape from this facility, the, the state chartered a flight or chartered a plane, rather, to bring these kids back from Michigan uh, to California, uh, you know, after they had sort of been through this cascading crisis. OK, so that sets the stage for this story. But... I want to start with something pretty basic. Before you guys started investigating this, I had no idea that California sent so many children out of state. So, Sarah, who are these kids and how do they end up all across the country? So these kids are, frankly, some of the most vulnerable children and teens in California. They are kids who are in the foster care system who have been removed from their homes because of abuse or neglect. Um, or they're kids who have gotten caught up in their teenage years in the juvenile justice system. Uh, and it's not uncommon for those two groups of people to have a pretty big overlap. Uh, they get sent across the country because California has had a hard time finding a safe place for them to stay in state. That's happening for a number of reasons. One being that the state has had a hard time meeting the need of the foster care population just in numbers. We don't have enough foster homes to take care of all of the kids in California's foster care system. The other issue is that the kids who end up at places like Lakeside, who end up getting sent out of state, 
are oftentimes very challenging. They've presented behaviors like running away from previous homes or getting into fights with staff at uh, group homes they've lived in before um, that make it challenging for uh, county officials to find a place that is willing to, to take them in in California. And so the out-of-state option becomes an option of last resort, um, in theory at least. Okay, so they're they're sent to these homes that are do special treatment and that are equipped or at least try to be equipped to handle them. Your investigation focuses in particular on a for-profit company called Sequel Youth and Family Services. How did they get into this business? Um, so Sequel Youth and Family Services, they were started by a group of entrepreneurs, business people, and they had visited a really well-known group home for youth back in the 90s. And they realized this is a business that can help youth, but it's also a business that can make a lot of money. And so they ended up starting a, a predecessor organization to Sequel Youth and Family Services, and then eventually in 1999, founding Sequel. Okay, so Sequel then develops as a company. It, it expands. How is it set up? Why is it for profit and, and why is there an issue with that? Right. So SQL actually runs a lot of different types of programs. Residential treatment programs are one of them. And in some of these programs, what they do is contract with a nonprofit uh, facilities and basically take over services and run those programs. Now, that kind of relationship is not illegal. It um, happens a lot of times. California has a specific um, provision in state law that bars youth from going to treatment programs that are organized and operated by for-profits. And wh why? What is, what, is the, uh, what is the problem with a for-profit company? This is something that goes back, the idea of this goes back, you know, to the 1990s in state law. And it was basically a recognition by the state legislature that profit could be a perverse incentive in a business or a field that um, is designed to help youth. You guys write about what happened to these children um, often at these institutions. There's uh, reports of abuse, there's allegations of humiliation, violence. Tell me about what you found. What kinds of incidents did you see? We, you know, in these thousands of pages of incident reports that we reviewed, we saw everything from broken bones to statutory rape to verbal and psychological assault that these kids were facing while at these facilities. Just this year at a facility in Wyoming, a kid was dragged by his feet face down across the floor because he had annoyed staff members by opening and closing the dryer door over and over again. That's, you know, I think that was a little bit of a common theme we found, right, was that kids were getting physically reprimanded for things that were absolutely annoying and frustrating, but absolutely were not dangerous and didn't warrant that kind of response. We saw reports of broken collarbones, facial abrasions, concussions. You know, staff members were found to be cursing kids out, teasing them for their status as foster youth, teasing them for not being able to go home to their families, things like that, you know, really humiliating and sometimes even dehumanizing behavior. There are a lot of really striking stories in, in the allegations, in the story. And, and Joaquin, I want to ask you, you, you guys 
saw a lot of these things in, in things like police reports and lawsuits and state reports. But did California know about these allegations when it was certifying these facilities and sending kids their way? For this investigation, uh, we requested records from five states that have programs that are housing kids from California. Uh, and we requested records going back to 2015. And in these reports, you know, we saw these allegations of abuse and maltreatment going back years. Um, and in many cases, these allegations were substantiated by licensing officials, meaning that they determined they most likely occurred. Um, yet, sort of year after year, the California Department of Social Services, which is the agency tasked with overseeing these programs, continue to certify them. Um, and that was sort of a big question we asked is sort of why, right? Why, why are these programs continue to be certified despite all this evidence of, of harm to the kids who are placed there? All right. I want to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you guys about the impact that this investigation is already having. We'll be back on Fifth and Mission right after this. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa. I'm joined by Chronicle reporters Cynthia DeZickes and Joaquin Palomino and imprint reporter Sarah Tiano. We're talking about their investigation into California sending troubled youths to states where in many cases they've been abused at for-profit institutions. So Joaquin, I was asking you before about um, California's certification of these facilities. Perhaps the most remarkable thing about this story is what happened as you guys were wrapping it up and you finally went to California with your findings and asked questions. Uh, what happened? So, yeah, we had been in communication with the California Department of Social Services for months, um, requesting records, asking them really about just how this whole process works of certification. Um, and then, you know, as we normally do in these big investigative projects, we sent them you know, a long list of questions about what we had found. It took a while for them to get back to us. And, and when they did, they told us that they planned to decertify all of the out-of-state residential treatment programs that are currently used by California. And within the next few months, they're planning on bringing all of the kids who are in these out-of-state residential treatment programs back to California. So, uh, I mean, it's a big, it's a big move. And it's, I think, something that county probation departments and child welfare agencies who are tasked with sort of overseeing these individual cases are going to, um, you know, now just sort of have to figure out, you know, where, where are these kids going to go? And, and uh, it should be something sort of worth tracking moving forward. So to be clear, before you guys were even able to publish this investigation, California has actually changed course and it's going to completely change direction and how, uh, how they treat kids. This is, I mean, a huge deal. This is a sea change in what they've um, previously been doing. And it's um, something that youth advocates have been pushing for for years. As Joaquin mentioned, um, this is going to have a ripple effect and counties are going to have to figure out, you know, what do we do next? Okay. I have some more questions about that. But first, just in terms of comments, what did the state say anything about why it, it had taken so long, why they had not perhaps taken this action sooner and why they hadn't acted? No, no, they, they didn't. And, you know, we asked outright why they had taken so long, why in the face of years of mounting evidence of abuse, not to mention, I mean, we are not the first investigation to call attention to what was happening at sequel facilities um, and other facilities that California certifies. So they had uh, ample opportunity 
to know precisely what was going on um, and didn't do anything. But they didn't have an answer for that. And what about sequel, guys? Uh, what did sequel say about all this? So first off, regarding the killing of Cornelius Fredericks at Lakeside Academy in Michigan, sequel said that they took swift action. All of the employees who are actually, uh, some of them are facing criminal charges now, were terminated and fired from the program. Um, they brought in extra staff and counselors to sort of deal with the fallout among the youth there. And they called Cornelius's death heartbreaking uh, in a statement they sent to us, and they you know, expressed their heartfelt sympathies to his loved ones. Um, and so that was regarding sort of the incident at, at Lakeside. They also said they're in the process of moving away at all of their facilities from physical restraints, which, which was sort of a big issue that we came across. Um, so oftentimes when uh, a young person at one of these programs is, you know, in the midst of an emotional outburst or, or acting out, they can, they're sometimes physically sort of restrained in these various ways by staff members. And that's, that's when a lot of things can escalate sometimes. That's when a lot of injuries occur, we found. And SQL says they're moving away from that practice entirely. And so they're going to sort of implement a restraint-free model and a trauma-informed model, as they put it, across their programs. A couple of larger questions before we go. Cynthia, why should we really pay a lot of attention to the treatment of this group of children? Uh, we talked about how, how troubled and vulnerable they are. Why is, is what happens to these kids and the treatment that they get so important? So um, Sarah mentioned this earlier, but we're talking about some of the state's most vulnerable children. These are young people who have been removed from abusive and unsafe homes, charged with crimes, and in some cases sexually trafficked. And they have experienced incredible traumas. They are being sent to these facilities to receive help. And the fact that they might go there only to experience more trauma is what is so devastating. I want to just add to that if I can real quickly. The other reason why I think we should care about these kids is that by taking them into, into protective custody, the California government takes on the legal role of their parent. And they are supposed to be caring for and protecting these kids as a parent would. With this investigation, we found that in the case of these kids being sent out of state, instead of being protected parentally, uh, they are being sent off with taxpayer dollars to be treated oftentimes very poorly. Okay, finally, I want to ask you about children that you spoke to. You guys talked to a lot of kids that had been in these facilities. You know, what what is their memory of it um, and how are they doing now? All of us spoke to a number of youth who have been into these in these programs. Some of them had positive things to say. You know, it wasn't all bad, right? They learned to grow. They learned to take responsibility for themselves. They felt like there were staff members who genuinely did care for them. But um, a common theme among all of them was also just sort of the environment of these programs being so tense. I mean, you have so many kids in these programs. They're all coming in there with traumas. They're all sort of in this pressure cooker environment. I, I mean, what, what a lot of them endured, I mean, it has stuck with them. You know, we, we spoke to some people. They're, you know, at these programs six years ago, and they're still feeling the effects of it. Sarah, the piece ends with a couple of children who are back in California. They're no longer in these facilities, and they're not doing well. Yeah, I spoke with one young man. His name is Colby. He, uh, He's a 19-year-old from 
the San Bernardino area, and he was at Lakeside in 2019. He knew Cornelius, um, but he was he had left the facility before everything went down this summer. He's just gone downhill since he left, and now he is back in the Southern California area, but he is uh, living out of his car. He's told me that he's actively struggling with, with drug addiction, and as he put it to me, I'm not better. Wow. Well, thank you guys for coming on. I know it was a very difficult investigation, but it's a remarkable work and it's already um, going to make an impact. Um, Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. A reminder that this investigation, it's called Far From Home, Far From Safe, is a collaboration between The Chronicle and The Imprint. To read it, go to sfchronicle.com slash farfromhome. And to read all of the Imprint's work, find them at imprintnews.org. Thanks to my guests today, Chronicle reporters Joaquin Palomino and Cynthia DeZiques, Imprint reporter Sarah Tiano. Thanks also to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. <laughs>